Good morning, Cross Point. Hope you guys are doing well. And uh, kids, you can be released. And as they are making their way back to Children's Church, I want to encourage you to turn with me to the book of Zephaniah. So you're going to find this after Habakkuk, before Haggai. And, and what we're doing today is we're continuing in our series through the Minor Prophets, these 12 books that are often overlooked, often misunderstood in many ways, and looking at yet again this week another book that often you won't hear preached on. It's, it's one of those that, for me, this week I've fallen in love with these three chapters, just 53 verses. And so as you're finding your way there in the middle, flipping between all those small books, let me just give you a little bit of, of background. The nation of Israel is in turmoil at this time. So if you remember, the nation itself has been divided into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is already gone. They're in exile. The Assyrians came down, attacked them, and they are off in exile. Last week, if you were able to join us online, you heard me talking about Nahum, who was prophesying against the nation of Zephaniah is speaking to than the southern kingdom of Israel that's called Judah. And in verse 1, it kind of lays a context for us. How do we understand what's the context in which he's speaking? It says, the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi. Now, here's an interesting thing. There's a lot of things that are interesting here that really, you're just like, yeah, 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 another name. And we read them quick because we don't know how to pronounce any of them, right? And so you just read through it to get to the rest. But Cushy is actually both a proper name and a description because it's the polite way in Hebrew of saying black is Cush. It's someone who was from Ethiopia or modern day Sudan. That most scholars believe that Zephaniah was actually biracial. He was a black Jew having a father from Africa and a Jewish mother. And this was part of his line, but then it goes on. And it says, he was the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. Ah, now we have something interesting because see, Hezekiah was the 13th king of Judah. So Zephaniah is from the royal bloodline of the king. But then in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, and now we start to see this picture. Because see, Hezekiah, though he was king, he got deathly ill and he prayed for, for more time, Lord, extend my life. And God gave him 15 more years. But during that time, God gave him a son and his son's name was Manasseh. And the scripture says that Manasseh did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Manasseh had a son, Amon, and he was even worse. It says that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Jewish Talmudic tradition writes that Amon burned the Torah, that he sealed up God's law, and he allowed cobwebs to form on the altar of God in the temple. He was killed, and then Josiah became king when he was just eight years old. But by the time he was 16, it says that Josiah now was a man after God's own heart like David. He was in the line of, of King David. He was bringing down the, the altars to Baal. He was seeking to restore the temple. And so now you have Zephaniah speaking. He's speaking from a family story that is broken. 
He's getting ready to speak judgment on a nation that his family line helped create and lead a nation into rebellion against God. They've been part of the restoration and they've also been part of the rebellion. And now Zephaniah is standing up to declare the word of the Lord. And this is what I want us to see this morning. How does God deal with our broken stories? Family histories that are broken, personal stories that are broken, a a nation story that is broken. And what I want to highlight this morning is three different characteristics of God that we see in the book of Zephaniah. And I want you to ask yourself this question as we go through it. Which of these characteristics of God am I more likely to forget and why? Which of these characteristics do I need to be reminded of this morning, today, now? Which of these do I tend to forget and why? What's the motivation? What's the longing? Why Why does my heart tend to lean away from these truths of who God is? Because we see the first one declared in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1. The creator's authority. That, that God is the creator and therefore has authority. Look at what it says in verses two and three. I will completely sweep away everything from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. I will sweep away people and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. That's the introduction. It's like, that's the tone that this letter begins in. And it's this statement. It's almost a decreation of what we read in Genesis 1.1. God created the heavens and the earth. He formed it. He filled it. He, he made the birds of the sky. He, he made the fish of the sea. He put people on the land. And he's like, I created it and I can destroy it. He's asserting his authority and ownership over his creation. It, it reminded me of copyright claims of today. Right? Like if you create something, you write a book, you write a play, you write a song, you can copyright that. You own it. The, the law says including the right to produce, reproduce, adapt, perform, translate, publish, display, rent, distribute. You created it, you own it. Somebody else can't take that thing that you've written, that you've created, and claim it for their own. And this is what God's saying. He's the owner. Because he created it, he owns it. And people were then created in his image to reflect his glory to all creation. All creation sings the glory of who God is as the creator. And as the creator, he therefore has ownership of it. But this is ultimately the heart of rebellion, isn't it? That we want to own it. I want it. You made it, but I want it. I want to use it how I want to use it. I want to do with it what what I want to do with it. The fundamental heart of rebellion is that we want to claim ownership of what ultimately belongs to God. And at the beginning of Zephaniah, he is claiming complete ownership and authority. Ownership of our lives. Who's in charge? Us or God? Authority and ownership over morality. Who determines what's right or wrong? Who deserves the worship? God is placing himself at the pinnacle as the creator and the author. And there's this declaration, I made it, I can destroy it. It's kind of what we laugh about. I brought you into the world and I can take you out. 
He's kind of laying this claim on everything. And then throughout the book, there's this series of rejections that are listed. I want to highlight seven of them, both for God's people. There's also rejections that are listed of the surrounding nations. But I want to focus on seven ways that God's people at that time rejected God's declaration of ownership. But here's the thing. The danger is is that we just stand in judgment over them like those are terrible people. How dumb could they be? Right? But I want us to stand with them. To kind of say, which of these are, are we likely to do? Which of these do our hearts tend toward that we seek to take for ourselves ownership of that which does not belong to us because it belongs to God? Because he is the creator. He is the owner. The first one is this. We see in verses four and five. I will cut off every vestige of Baal from this place. The names of the pagan priest along with the priest. Those who bow and worship on the rooftop to the stars in the sky. Those who bow and pledge loyalty to the Lord, but also pledge loyalty to Malcolm. Here's the thing. Imagine your spouse decides not to come home because they're going to stay at their neighbor's house and sleep with them. How do you feel about that? That's idolatry. That's what God's saying. That's what Justin was preaching on in the book of Hosea. Like there's this emotional response to that. That's not cool. We don't do that. That's going to break that relationship. This is what God's saying. I've entered into as your creator a relationship with you. And then you're just going to go and worship these false gods. You're going to worship this imagination that you've created of Baal. You're going to worship the stars that I created and you're going to worship them, you're going to say that, oh, I love you, but I also love my my side thing too. He's not having it. And this was the, the God's people rejection of their owner, creator, God. And then they just stopped talking. They're like, okay, they're just going to give God the silent treatment. This is the second thing. They're just going to do their own thing. Okay, we'll live in the same house, but I'm not going to talk to you. I'm going to have my thing, you have your life, and that's it. Zephaniah 1.6, and those who turn back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. It's the silent treatment to God. They don't inquire of him. It's like, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. I I have my plans, I have my life, I have my goals, and I'm going to do those, and that's it. They're not asking God what they should do. They're not asking God how they should live their life. They're not inquiring of him, surrendering to him. They're living independent of God and refusing to talk with him. And then number three, they're reflecting the culture instead of their creator. They were called in relationship to reflect the creator, but instead they're reflecting the superstitions of the culture. This could be a little confusing at first. In verse nine, it says, on that day, I will punish all who skip over the threshold. And you're like, really? You're going to punish me for skipping now? Like, what is this? This is when you have to go back some and understand the history. In 1 Samuel chapter five, there was a time when the Philistines attacked the nation of Israel. Right? And, and they defeated Israel, and the Ark of the Covenant was taken and put into the temple of the Philistine god Dagon. 
and, and, and they put the Ark of the Covenant in there, but then the next morning, the, their statue that they had kind of carved with their own hands and worshiped, oh, Dagon, had fallen over. So they stood them back up. But then the next day, they went back in, and that statue had fallen over, his head had fallen off, and so had his hands. And so it said, to this day, the Philistines skip over the threshold in, in remembrance of this. They got rid of the Ark of the Covenant here, like, take it back. And so what this is saying is like, look, you think yourself so wise, so progressive that you're going to adopt the religious superstitions of other peoples and, and, and other gods and claim it as your own and call that worship? You're reflecting the culture instead of reflecting the creator. You're reflecting the, this pluralism rather than devotion to the one true God. You can't mix these things together. This was the rebellion of God's people, and it led to complacency, just this sense of whatever in verse 12. Number four, and at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who settle down comfortably, who say to themselves, the Lord will do nothing good or bad. <clears throat> it's this complete indifference to God, this sense of, of beyond lukewarm. It's not that I can't ignore the existence of God. It's a modern day agnostic. Right? Like an atheist believes there is no God. An agnostic says, yeah, there is a God, but I don't. how can we know which one's true? Just be a good person and hope for the best. This was God's people at the time. Like, oh, he's not going to do anything good or bad. Just live your life, be comfortable, and don't stir the pot too much. This was the rebellion of God's people. And it led ultimately then to number five, for them to be self-serving, for God's people to then be completely about themselves. Three one says, woe to the city that is rebellious and defiled, the oppressive city. Because see, when you only think about yourselves, when God isn't going to do anything good or bad, when you remove God from the picture, then all we have left is to live for ourselves. I got to get mine before you get yours because no one's going to give me anything. And so we become all about ourselves, our own comfort, regardless of how that impacts others, regardless of the oppression it creates. Because when you remove God from it, it all becomes about us. And that's how it was. That's how they were living, and this is why judgment was coming. And then it's ultimately as if we're saying to God, just talk to the hand. Don't want to hear it. I don't want to deal with you. I don't want to listen to you. I, I just don't want to have anything to do. Verse 2 of chapter 3. She has not obeyed. She has not accepted discipline. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to God. You're ignoring God's word. Defiant heart that has become callous to any sort of correction. Mistrusting God as if he doesn't have your best interest at heart. Pushing away in both arrogance and fear. See, on one side, we can push God away because we're arrogant, because quite honestly, we think we have it figured out more than he does. On the other side, we can push him away because of fear, because he might tell me something I don't want to hear. So if I don't listen, then I don't know, and then I get a pass, right? And so just stay at a, a good distance so I can be comfortable, God. This was the rebellion of God's people. And then the final example that we see is they became careless with God's word. Verse 
4 of chapter 3, her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary. They do violence to instruction. Like, I think of Ammon, the, the king before Josiah, who burned the Torah, tradition said, who allowed cobwebs to grow, ignoring God's word. But sometimes we can be the same. Dust, the classic dust on the Bible on the shelf. We just don't open it. We don't read it. We don't care what it has to say. Just, God, make my life comfortable. Bless my plans. But don't, don't interfere too much. And we can push away. Or on the other side, you have those who profane the sanctuary, who do violence with instruction, who then will try to take God's word and try to make it say something that is completely opposite of what God says is right or wrong. And you use then the scripture to justify rebellion against God. It happens. In churches, it happens. And so now you have the creator's authority, his ownership over the world. Then you have the rebellion of God's people coming to a collision of the creator's discipline. This second aspect of God's character, how will he respond and why does he respond that way? See, have you ever heard, I heard this statement a lot growing up, wait till your father gets home. Have you heard that? Yeah, I, I hear that. Like, there's been times. And, and I kind of knew what happened. When I hear those words from my mom, it was like, I knew, number one, I did something dumb and disobedient, and I got caught, right? And number two, I knew that I was about to be punished. As soon as my dad got home, which was about 4.30 p.m., like, so I remember, like, that, that feeling when you're watching the clock, and you're like, maybe she'll forget Maybe if I'm really good, she won't remember and then won't say anything. Or then if I'm really good, then, then she'll just decide to like have mercy on me and I won't get punished. That was the, the hope. Now, normally when my dad came home, that was a sweet time in our home. Like we ate dinner around the family table together and, and that was the norm. When I was dumb and disobedient, there was the punishment first. And then there was the sweetness of what that meant. Zephaniah uses this phrase throughout his book called the day of the Lord. And I kind of want to connect that, if you will, to this thought, wait till your father gets home. This idea of like, wait till God gets back. There's coming this time, this reckoning when God returns that is going to bring something a bitter judgment and a sweet mercy. And it's, it's a both and that he's dealing with. And we see this throughout the book. And, and I'm just going to rattle these off quickly. In, in verse 7 of chapter 1, be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. In verse 8, on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials. In verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near. It's near and rapidly approaching. Listen, the day of the Lord, then the warrior's cry will be bitter. Our warriors will fail in the presence of of God when he returns. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth. Perhaps you will be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger in chapter 2, verse 3. The day of the Lord contains something that we see throughout the prophets that initially was judgment, 
but then was a sweet mercy. It was this both and. It was something that was coming in the near future and that still awaits us in the future today. And so in this context, there was this day of the Lord. When this day comes, be ready. And there was discipline. That God, as a good God, will discipline. But I want us to see how he disciplines, number one. Like what that discipline is. And then ask the important question, why does he discipline? Because I think this is a question sometimes we do not fully consider or look at. But first, what he disciplines. It was possessions. We saw this in, in verses two and three. What we place our trust in, our homes, the earth. I'm going to decreate it. I'm going to destroy it. The birds of the air, the, the fish of the sea. I'm going to bring destruction to it. You want to trust in false gods? You're, you're going to. The discipline was coming that I will stretch out my hand against Judah in chapter one, verse four. And against all the residents of Jerusalem, I will cut off every vestige of Baal from this place. And the names of the pagan priest, along with the priests themselves, I'm going to destroy it all. These things you're clinging to that, that bring death, that are lies, that are creation of your own hands, I'm going to destroy it all. The, the people that you place your hope in, the politician that you think is going to bring about a better future, these leaders that you say, I'm going to follow them because they have it all figured out. In eight, on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials, the king's sons, and all who are dressed in foreign clothing. You want to trust in money? You think that's going to be your security? You think the size of your bank account is going to save you when the day of the Lord comes? Zephaniah 1.18, their silver and their gold will be unable to rescue them on the day of the Lord's wrath. The whole earth will be consumed by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete, yes, a horrifying end of all the inhabitants of the earth. He is stripping away everything until we stand bare before our creator. And the question then becomes, in whom will you trust? Therefore, wait for me, it says in 3.8. This is the Lord's declaration until I rise up for plunder. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms in order to pour out my indignation on them. All my burning anger for the whole earth will be consumed by the fire of my jealousy. Does God care about his authority and ownership of his creation. Yes. Yes, he does. But why? So God does this. And I think the danger is, is what can happen is we can say, oh, like, God is only that. He punishes. He's like the old man who sits on his front porch telling neighborhood kids to stay off his lawn. And we can reduce God to that kind of image. We're just a bunch of ants, and if we step out of line, he just steps on us and crushes us. But let me ask you this. Is that what he does? Think about what he was doing in his discipline was removing all the false hopes, the false gods, so that we would look to him. And I want us to consider why. 
why God disciplines. Because if not, I think we get a very wrong picture of God. I think we, we just make him out to be unkind and, and unloving, and, and we think ourselves better and more generous than God himself. One reason why is that God does judge the wicked. In chapter 3, verses 6 through 8, what we have read that I have cut off nations, their corner towers are destroyed. I have laid waste their streets with no one to pass through. Their cities lie devastated, without a person, without inhabitants. Like, man, that's bleak. Why? Look at how it continues. I said, you will certainly fear me and accept correction. That's the why. Like, now, when everything you've been hoping in, all the money's gone, all the homes are gone, all the comfort's gone, and you're standing before me, surely you'll bow and worship now. Surely now you'll receive that discipline, that correction, and have your heart bend it back toward me. Surely now you'll return to relationship with me as I created you. That's the why. But then it continues. Because it says, then her dwelling place, it would not be cut off. It wouldn't be. This punishment that's coming wouldn't come. If only you would, would heed the instruction. If only you would receive my love. Only if you would stand and take refuge in me. That's why the discipline came. But that's not how they responded. However, they became more corrupt in all their actions. Then they blame God for the very discipline. Oh, he's unkind, he's unloving. And we blame God for the very thing we deserved when God was showing us mercy. And so they became more hard-hearted, more corrupt, and therefore wait for me. This is the Lord's declaration until the day I rise up for plunder, for my decision, and this is when it says, together the nations, where he will unleash his burning anger. So one of the reasons God disciplines, it's that we would come and soften our hearts in worship to God. But some will reject him. And those who do will face an eternal judgment. But then we see in, in verse 9 of chapter 3 something different. The heart of God to those who do turn. For then I will restore pure speech to the peoples. See, now there's a shift. Now we see in the day of the Lord not just that bitter judgment that is deserved, but also the sweet mercy that is offered. This sense of her, then I will restore pure speech to the peoples. I just want to highlight this for a moment. Notice the plural form of peoples. Singular is person, plural is people. What is peoples? It's different groups of people. It's, it means it's not just the Jews as a group of people. It is all nationalities. This is where we're going to see Zephaniah once again bring up mention of his own heritage from beyond the rivers of Cush, my people. This, this aspect of there will be peoples from all tongues, all tribes, all languages who will be restored and be called my people. 
There was something richer, deeper there. In 3.11, on that day I will not be put to shame because of everything you have done in rebelling against me. Do you hear what that's saying in 3.11? You've done wrong against God. You've rebelled against God. But on that day, you will not be put to shame. Why? How? How do we go from being put to shame, walking in rebellion against the authority and ownership of our creator to now saying, yes, it's not like I've been good. It's not like I haven't rebelled. I have rebelled. And yet I will not be put to shame. In 12, they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. This is the image I want you to see because of what continues. Those who take refuge in the Lord will not be put to shame. And you hear this song of surrender that is sung together. That in this terrifying day of the Lord, where you can read and and in your mind you can think that's all there is, is now this song of joy. Zephaniah 3, 14 and 15. Sing for joy. Sing for joy, really. In the midst of all of this, sing for joy because we have taken refuge in the Lord. Daughter of Zion, shout loudly, Israel. Be glad. Celebrate with all your heart, daughter of Jerusalem, in the midst of this. That we can sing in the midst of God describing his wrath, we can sing and celebrate why, how, for the Lord has removed your punishment. Really? It's deserved. I've rebelled. But God has removed our punishment when we take refuge in him. He has turned back your enemy. But how? How did God then remove that punishment. Why do we have calls to sing and celebrate today? And this is where I want us to see and conclude with the beauty of verse 17 in chapter 3. Look at what it says. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. Here's the amazing thing I want us to see. There's three phrases in here. The first is God is among you. Do you remember when I started in verse one of chapter one? That part that we can so quickly overlook, the, the, the genealogy of Zephaniah coming from the royal line, having a broken family that both led a nation into rebellion and led them into restoration. He has a broken story, a broken past. And he had no idea that when he wrote these words, that it would be in the context of this broken story that God would cause his only son, Jesus Christ, to enter. Because see, in the Gospel of Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus is recorded saying this. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amon. Amon fathered Josiah. And then in 16, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Messiah. 
Now think of those words. God is among us. Isn't this what we believe and proclaim that God, the eternal God, entered humanity, entered our broken stories of rebellion, of failure, of loss, and brought redemption. He didn't just step outside of that. He didn't just bypass it. He entered the very brokenness of our stories, that your story doesn't define you. Your brokenness doesn't define you because Jesus enters that story and restores it from the inside. Your heritage, your background is not your identity. Where you're from, it's not what defines you. It's who you belong to. The royalty is not in your blood. Your importance does not originate with your class, with your income, with anything else. It it belongs to those who take refuge in the Lord. And I see this saying, the Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. Do you remember the the bitter cry of of our warriors who, who falter and fail at the day of the Lord? But now you have the warrior king standing saying he is the one who saves. A king born to a teenage mom in a stable. He was without any standard of human beauty, no form that people looked at him and they're like, wow, isn't he great? Nothing like that. But then, but then they heard him speak and people who were blind could see. People who were lame could walk simply because he said the word and people started to take notice. Religious leaders came against him and Jesus, when he spoke and asked questions, it brought shame on those religious leaders. And instead of surrendering to Jesus, they rose up with murderous intent against him. And knowing that they intended to kill him, Jesus, the warrior king, fixed his eyes on Jerusalem and walked there, knowing what awaited And his victory was not through some brutal military defeat that brought everyone into defeat so he could take the throne. But he voluntarily laid down his life, living a perfect life. He laid down his life, the warrior king who saves without flinching, without fear. He knew what awaited him. And the victory was secure. Jesus is the warrior who saves. And I want us to see then what it says. He will quiet. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. And before that, he will rejoice over you with gladness. This is the image I want you to have in your mind. I want you to, this is the picture in my head, okay? So let me try to describe it. You have God on this side, right? And and he spoke the world into existence. He formed it. He filled it. Birds of the sky, fish of the sea, people to have dominion over it all. He created it to be in relationship with him, to reflect his glory, right? And so God created all this, but his creation rebelled against him. So it says there's going to be wrath and discipline and judgment against his creation. I'm going to destroy it all. I'm going to destroy all the people. I'm going to destroy the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. It's all gone. I'm going to wipe it all out. Except 
There's the warrior king, the son who was sent, who was born of a virgin, who stretched out his arms. And it's saying those who take refuge in him will be saved. And so you have this, the wrath of God being poured out. Jesus standing between us and the wrath of God, taking it upon himself when he died on the cross. Arms spread wide. And those who will find shelter in him, those who will stand behind him will be saved. But those who step outside and seek their own way will receive the fullness of God's wrath on themselves. And so the question becomes, will you stand in the shelter of God's embrace? Or will you step outside of it? And here's that aspect of God's character. So you have this warrior king who is our protection, who's taking God's wrath, right? But how does he view those who take shelter in him? How does he view those who seek refuge in his arms? So he's like, man, you guys really did it this time, didn't you? Is he exasperated? Is he frustrated? Notice what it says. He will rejoice over you with gladness. So those who stand and hide in his arms, his words to you, his expression to you, is he's rejoicing over you with gladness. You've taken protection in me. That he quiets you in his love. That there's not fear, there's not condemnation, there's not judgment. He's taken that. And so now there is no fear, there is no shame because he's taken all of it. When you remain and and take refuge in him, that he will delight in you with singing, that he sings over you as you take refuge in him. How phenomenal of a picture that a warrior king would serenade us in his love. Not because we weren't rebellious, because we were, but because we humbled ourselves to Christ. So which of these aspects do you need to be reminded of this morning? What aspects of God's character? Is it that the creator's authority? Are you living your life just independent from God? Saying, hey, I'm doing my own thing. Maybe I'll ask God to bless my plans, but I'm definitely not asking him what I should do because that's scary and I don't trust him. Do you need to be reminded this morning that he created you, therefore has authority in your life? Do you need to be reminded that he does bring discipline, but his, his discipline is not just in condemnation, it is an invitation to fear him and to have your heart softened to him. Are you blaming God for the, for the consequences of your own wrongs but thinking he's somehow at fault? Maybe you need to be reminded that his discipline is not just to crush you, it's to draw your heart back to him. Because there is coming a time when there will be no more opportunities to turn. Or do you need to be reminded that as you rest in the refuge of the arms of God, 
that he sings over you with love. He rejoices over you. Because you take refuge in him, there is not condemnation. There is no fear. Does your heart need to be reminded of that? And then I want you to follow up with the simple question, why? Why does my heart tend to forget this? Like, ponder that this week. Why am I resistant to the idea of a warrior serenade? Why am I resistant to the idea that he has authority and ownership over my life? Why am I resistant to the idea that he would discipline me in love? Allow this to draw you into deeper humility in the embrace of our Savior. Let's pray.